What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. The second Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 20, in the bottom um, of the left half of your leaflet, and on page 1636 uh, in the Pew Bibles. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The last Bible reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, on the right-hand side of your leaflet, and on page 1728 in the Pew Bibles. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thanks, Alicia. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you are doing a great work in your world to glorify your son in his people. So as we reflect on what it means to be your church, we pray that you might help us to have our eyes fixed firmly on him. Amen. Alrighty, can I ask you please to make sure you've got a leaflet open in front of you? Um, as Alicia pointed out, each of those three readings are printed there for you for easy reference. Uh, there's a couple of other things, um, other passages there, and you'll see some blanks that you'll need a pen handy to be able to fill in so that you know what the points are from today. Down the bottom right, in the unlikely chance scenario that I actually finish on time, we'll have a discussion question. If not, you can talk about it afterwards. Uh, we've been involved in a short series on the nature of church. What is church? What's it to be like? And so on. You'll see on the top left there, the first week, we asked the question, what's the point of church? Uh, and we saw 
The point of church is to praise and worship God for his glorious grace. In the second week, last week, we asked the question, whose church is it anyway? And we saw that the church belongs to Jesus. And so in many ways, the best definition of church there on your handout is of Christ's people gathered around God's word. That brings us then to this, the last week of this short series, what should church be like? What should our experience of church be like? What does it mean to belong to church? Um, I can't cover everything, obviously, in today's talk, but I wanted to pick three particular characteristics of church. That's what each of the points correspond to. Each of them, you'll discover in turn, it has an image or a picture that perhaps will help you to remember it. Let's start with point one then. What uh, What should church be like? Point one, church should be, here the blanks for you to fill in, church should be orderly, not chaotic. Church should be orderly, not chaotic. Church should be orderly, not chaotic. Now, I'm sure that as I say that, some of you are thinking, wow, that doesn't sound very memorable, Jeff. Um, and in fact, maybe, maybe this is just reverse psychology. I picked something so utterly mundane and uninspiring that now you're never going to forget it. Church should be orderly, not chaotic. And the reason I've done it and why I want to begin here is because this first characteristic, I think, it directly affects our ability to gather around God's Word. You see, being well-ordered, not chaotic, it's actually critical in any large organisation where no one knows everyone and when you can't make decisions collectively, not all of them anyway. So if you're orderly, not chaotic, it means you can just get on with worrying less about how things are going to happen and instead praising and worshipping God for his glorious grace. So the first thing church should be like, it should be orderly, not chaotic. And here's the image that will help you to remember on screen behind me. Thanks, Emmerich. <laughs> it's a wardrobe storage list. Now, actually, quite frankly, for some of you, this is heaven on earth. Um, but this, this idea, church should be orderly, not chaotic, okay? Now, What does that look like in practice? So let me give you two examples. They're both listed there on your handout. The first is to do with church leadership structures. Church leadership structures. Uh, Last week we saw that Jesus is the head of the church, but still he provides for orderly leadership structures within the church. Have a look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. They're printed there on your handout. Ephesians 4 verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You'll see there in verse 11, Christ himself appoints leaders And he does it to equip everyone to do works of service. Christ himself appoints leaders to equip everyone in church to do works of service. And when Jesus does this, he's not establishing a hierarchy amongst Christians as if leaders are more important than everyone else. What he's doing is putting in place a system or leadership structures, both lay and staff, with clear responsibilities and clear accountabilities to build up the whole body of Christ. And they do that by enabling every member of the body to flourish. And of course, what stops leaders from ever feeling that they're somehow superior uh, because of their role? Well, it's the fact that the chief shepherd of the flock, the head of the church, he laid down his life for the sheep. 
Of course, the way the person at the top acts, that sets the tone and culture and expectation for everyone throughout the organisation. It's kind of like in a company. The way in which the CEO behaves, that permeates the whole organisation. In our church, the head of the church, he is self-sacrificing. That's the kind of place that he leads. So, you see, church will be orderly, not chaotic in terms of leadership structures, but you also see it in terms of, this is point two there on your handout, our Sunday gatherings. Our Sunday gatherings. Our Sunday gatherings, I think, they ought to be orderly and not chaotic. Our meetings, I think, they ought to be thoughtful and intentional, well-prepared and considered. Now, I'm not saying that they, shouldn't, that they must be rigid or inflexible. I think they ought to be open to creative spontaneity, but they just shouldn't be so wildly unstructured or random that we find ourselves worrying, oh, what's going to happen next? There ought to be a certain degree of predictability about them. This, I think, is the point of the reading, the first reading that Alicia brought to us. Have a look with me again at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. I'm going to read it out for us. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. But everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is a God, not a God of disorder, but of peace. And when Paul says that, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, he's not so much saying that God is peaceful as opposed to God is hostile. Rather, he's saying God is orderly as opposed to chaotic. Did you notice in that passage, there were phrases like verse 27, one at a time things should be done, or verse 31, each in turn. Why? Because God's intention for our Sunday meetings, verse 26, is that everything be done so that the church may be built up. So the church may be built up. And that phrase there, built up, is exactly the same thing as Ephesians 4, verse 11. Now, for the record, I want to say, the reason I chose this passage, 1 Corinthians 14, it's not so that we get distracted by talk about tongues or prophecy, but rather to remind us that in Christ's church, we are prepared to put aside our personal preferences for the sake of building others up. I'll say it again, in Christ's church, we are prepared to put aside our personal preferences for the sake of building others up. And that's because in Christ's church, loving service matters more than the exercise of gifts in the body of Christ. Loving service matters more than the exercise of gifts. We know that because 1 Corinthians 13, the immediately preceding chapter, Paul has been at pains to say that if you can speak in the tongue of angels even, but you have not love, 
it is utterly pointless. So, church should be orderly and chaotic. That's especially, I think, in our Sunday gatherings. Now, throughout this short series, I've tried to highlight each time what that doesn't mention, uh, what isn't on view here. And you'll see there on your handout, I've said there, there's no mention when it comes to our Sunday, when it comes to our Sunday gatherings of personal preferences when it comes to style of worship. There is, I think, no mention of personal preference when it comes to style of worship. Now, don't mishear me. Of course, our personal preferences are important and you're free to choose the kind of church that largely resonates with the kind of person that you are. Having said that, personal preference, though important, it's not everything. Nowhere in the New Testament is there ever a suggestion of church members saying things like, I want it done my way, and that being something that's commended. But take that idea and to push it a little bit further, I think it means that because all of us have different tastes, different preferences, because we all have different preferences, it seems to me that unless everyone doesn't like something about church, we're probably not doing it right. Does that make sense? Unless everyone doesn't like something, we're probably not doing it right, given that we all have different tastes and preferences. I remember a time, a few years ago, when I was standing at the door after church, and the person who came out after church stopped me at the door and said, thank you, the service is very good, but the music was too loud. And, I kid you not, the very next person came out and said, the music wasn't loud enough today. <laughs> Dare I say it this way, a church that builds everyone up will never be fully to your liking. A church that builds everyone up will never be fully to your liking. Now, what does that mean for us? What implications does that have? Well, as Christ's people who gather around God's Word, it says that we subvert our own interests for the sake of others. As Christ's people who gather around God's Word, we are prepared to subvert our own interests for the sake of others. Uh, there's a reference there on your handout uh, to Carl Dienig's book, Gathered Together. It's actually one of the books in the book prize that I'm going to come back to in a moment. There's a quote on screen. Just uh, let me read it out for you. Even the simple act of turning up to gather with God's people and direct your attention to God is a subversive act that undermines your own personal hopes and dreams. At least, that is, with respect to the hours spent at church that you could have used to sleep in, go surfing, play sport, or whatever else you enjoy doing. Meeting together to serve one another subverts our self-focused culture. It subverts our personal desires and ambitions. It reminds us that life is more than just me. No mention, I think, of personal preference when it comes to style of worship. Now, this idea of embracing different preferences, it's actually going to lead to our second point about what church will be like in a moment. That's, that point is going to be all about diversity. Before I get there, I just want to take a moment uh, to publicly honour, on your behalf, uh, Michael Morrow for his ministry in serving our whole church family. Uh, we just prayed for him a few moments ago. But in case you're not aware, each week he spends literally hours 
planning our Sunday meetings. He chooses the songs and arranges the prayers. He finalizes the Bible readings and collects family news to be shared. If you've ever seen the run sheet that he prepares, you'll know that it actually, um, it's down literally to the minute what happens in the time which we have together. I mean, it's a good plan, and then the preacher gets up and it always falls apart. But he does it so that it fits together in one seamless, uplifting, and God-honouring experience that I know you are so thankful for because you're always telling me. And every week of the year, 52 times over, he sets aside time to equip others to do the works of service in the body of Christ in exactly the way in which Ephesians 4 says a pastor should. Can I say to you, please give him feedback about our Sunday gatherings. He loves to hear it. By his own admission, he doesn't get it right every time. I mean, who could? But please also be okay when he doesn't do exactly what you suggest. Because, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, it's actually quite hard to please 800 people. Please keep praying that God would fill him with wisdom and grace to know how best to help the whole body of Christ to be instructed and encouraged and built up to maturity. All right. First characteristic of what church should be like. It should be orderly, not chaotic. Let me come to the second one there. And in the bottom of your handout, here's the blank for you to fill in. Church should be united in our diversity. Church should be united in our diversity. Church should be united in our diversity. Now, this characteristic, I suspect, is going to be more familiar to most of us. This is the idea of church being like a body with many parts, which we saw alluded to in Ephesians 4. Uh, And, uh, of course, here's the image. This one's not hard to recall. Church should be one body with many parts. And perhaps the best example of that comes from 1 Corinthians 12 and the second reading that Alicia brought to us. So I'll get you to look with me there. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, down near the bottom of the handout. Just as a body, though, one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Verse 18, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Church should be united in our diversity. Paul is saying, the body of Christ needs you, just as the body of Christ needs people who are not you, and in fact, who are not like you. I mean, imagine, if you will, a whole church full of people just like me terrifying thought the church should be united in diversity not there's a note there on your handout 
not united in uniformity. Not united in uniformity. Because unity is not the same as uniformity. Even though, quite frankly, to be united in our diversity, it is much harder. You know, it's pretty easy to be united with people who are just like you, who think like you, who want the same things as you. That's easy. Being united with people who are different, who have different preferences, different interests, different desires, that's much harder. Again, from Carl Dienick, if you have a look on the top right of your handout. The Bible never encourages us to think of church as a place where there are lots of people like me. On the contrary, it is characterised as a place where people are not like me. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, what unites us in our diversity is the fact that, even though we are different, we are all one in Christ. That's the Galatians passage that I printed there for you, just a few verses from Galatians chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read them out. Galatians 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And to be clear, Paul is not saying there are no distinctives in church. There is still Jew and Gentile, slave, free, male and female. What he's saying is there is no distinction among God's children through faith. What Paul is saying is that in our diversity, with all our difference, the one thing Christians share in common with each other, the one thing that actually outweighs anything that might set us apart from each other, is that we all became God's children through faith. We all got into God's family in exactly the same way, irrespective of race, ethnicity or gender. The way you get into God's family is simply by believing that our Heavenly Father adopts us in Christ. That means that when we are one in Christ, when we are united in Christ, it forges a bond that is even more powerful than biology. Because it says we're adopted into our Heavenly Father's spiritual family with His firstborn Son, Jesus, our eldest sibling. Church should be united in our diversity. Now, as you know, I've been running this competition over the last few weeks, uh, inviting people to uh, share what they love about church and what they might do to make church better. And I've been giving away these book prizes uh, all about books, great books on church. Um, thank you to all who've sent in entries. Uh, what really struck me by when, as I read them was that so many of them talked about what I love about church is that I belong to something bigger, uh, that I belong to something bigger. Uh, and so, in fact, I've chosen this week's uh, winner. It's from our 10.30 gathering. Uh, it's from Ali. Uh, here's what she said. I love so many things about church, but what I love most is the family I found in the body of Christ. In my father's house, there is a place for me. I am loved, known, and accepted for who I am, and I'm supported and lifted up when things are not going well. That kind of community is very hard to find. 
Well, once again, like the first characteristic, this is not easy in practice. So what does it look like for us to be united in diversity? And it's important to reflect on that, I think, because we need right expectations so that we can be aspirational without being unrealistic. So that we're not jaded when we're disappointed and tempted to give up on the church. Because Jesus didn't. He laid down his life for her. Can I say, I think this is a particular challenge for us uh, at, here at Trinity, given our size, uh, given the, how quickly people come and go, given the fact that we span in our church every age and stage and every culture from around the world. So, for example, we talk often about aiming and wanting to be intergenerational. Can I say that wanting to be intergenerational doesn't mean that we try to do everything together all the time. It doesn't mean we want to do everything all together all the time. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is, I think, if we did everything together all the time, we'd lose some of the evangelistic benefit that we gain uh, when we actually gather in smaller groups. So a good example is our evening service. Our evening service, which has for decades now been a terrific place for outreach, especially to university students and to young adults, because like attracts like, and there are great opportunities there. But the other reason why I think wanting to be intergenerational doesn't mean that we have to do everything all together all the time, is because, quite frankly, it's just impractical. I played this scenario out in my head this week. It was very entertaining for me. I found myself wondering, what if we got our retirees to come to our youth group. Actually, this would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? Like, they wouldn't understand each other's language. Some of them would be running around and others wouldn't be able to get up. Like, there'd be a whole series of reasons why that just wouldn't be a practical thing to do. So, longing to be intergenerational doesn't mean that we do everything all together all the time. But what I think it does mean, at the very least is at least gathering together at some point with the possibility of meeting others who are not like us. Not everyone, but at least the possibility of someone. And so actually that's my practical suggestion for next week. Uh, like throughout this series, each week I've tried to give you a practical suggestion. Is there on your handout? Practical suggestion for next week. Aim to talk to someone who is not like you. Aim to talk to someone who is not like you, in whatever measure you use, because church shouldn't be uniform. Church shouldn't be a place where you're only accepted if you fit in and look like everybody else. To be united in diversity, I think, means you belong because, well, it's only by faith that any of us belong and we and are welcomed into Christ's family. And actually, yeah, back to that competition I was talking about before, I asked people to say, what's one thing you could do to help make church better? It was interesting, actually. Um, someone from this gathering, uh, Joash, actually, he said that um, he has resolved to sit next to someone new each week. So now you're on notice, Joash. <laughs> but what a great suggestion for all of us, sit next to someone new each week. Now, in a moment, we're going to see that if a church is united in its diversity, not united in uniformity, but united in its diversity, it's actually a powerful witness to the world around us, a world that is so fractured, a world that's so tribal. 
See, in our world, the world is always raising barriers and forcing people to conform. Church ought to be completely different. Uh, Have a look on screen behind me. Um, There's something I'm going to read out to you. This is from a couple of American guys, uh, Stanley Halvas and William Willimon. Here's what they say. The most interesting creative political solutions we Christians have to offer our troubled society are not new laws, advice to Congress, or increased funding for social programs, though we may find ourselves supporting such national efforts. The most creative social strategy the church we have to offer is the church. Here we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it something that it is not, namely, a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. Isn't that a lovely phrase? Church is a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. I'm going to say that's the reason why in our church we do all that we can to break down any barrier to entry for newcomers. It's the reason why we stop you at the door every week and ask you to write a name tag. I know it's a bit of a nuisance, but we do it because actually anyone new here doesn't know anyone. So it's actually a starting point for them. It's the reason why we ask people to fill in communication slips so that they can be followed up and properly welcomed personally in the week ahead. It's the reason why in our church we're always inviting strangers into our growth groups, even though, quite frankly, it changes the dynamic and makes them a little more complicated. But we do it because in the church, God is forming a family out of strangers. And so I want to say today, if you are someone who is new to us, I want to say, welcome to the family. We welcome you warmly because once we were you, and we don't want you to miss out. What should church be like? It should be orderly, not chaotic. It should be united in our diversity. Finally, let me finish here. Point three, church should be a witness to the watching world. Church should be a witness to the watching world. Church should be a witness to the watching world. This final characteristic is not so much about us. It's not inward looking. Rather, it's about how we relate outwards to others. And that's the third and final reading that Alicia brought to us. Let me read it. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Church shall be a witness to the watching world. It's Jesus, actually, who puts it most memorably in the Matthew 5 passage that I printed there. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, The image for this third point, well, it's not hard to work out. It's on screen behind me. This is the image of church being like a lighthouse, a lighthouse that illuminates those who are in darkness. And so a reminder that the church is always on show before a watching world. 
We are always on show, which means really the only question is, what does the world see when they look at us? What will our witness to the world be? So what I'm saying is that Christians and the church, we will always be different. We will always stand out. In fact, the only way to avoid the spotlight is to hide. I realise no one likes being the centre of attention. Not when you see the way in which people get treated in our society. We would much rather slip by unnoticed and anonymous. It's why we protect our right to privacy so fiercely. But according to Jesus, the church can never be hidden. Not if we're being faithful to Christ's command to let our light shine before others. And I'm not saying let's stand out for all the wrong reasons. But I think the point is that if Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, the only way that people will ever meet him here on earth is if they see his work in the lives of his people. And that means we must stand up, step into the light and into the public glare. Uh, To put it slightly differently, uh, church is never meant to be primarily designed for outsiders. It's not primarily designed to be outward-looking. Actually, church should be Godward-looking. Church should be aiming to praise God for his glorious grace. But the thing is that when others see us and see how we live, they will see something different. Hopefully, they will see Christ. So, from Howard Vass and Willimon again, you'll see on screen behind me. The world needs the church because without the church, the world doesn't know who it is. The only way for the world to know that it is being redeemed is for the church to point to the Redeemer by being a redeemed people. The way for the world to know that it needs redeeming, that it is broken and fallen, is for the church to enable the world to strike hard against something which is an alternative to what the world offers. That an interesting phrase, the church has to enable the world to strike hard against something that's an alternative to what the world offers. How does the alternative that we offer enable others to see Jesus? What do we need to do? Well, actually, it's not very hard. We just need to be the people of Christ gathered around God's word. And his light will come shining through. So one last quote there for you. This is from the other book that's uh, in the prize pack by uh, Dustin Benji. Here's what he says. When, churches, when church members' feet are firmly fixed on the path of light, their lives will reflect the glory and majesty of the one who is the light. Your daily actions, attitudes, conversations, thoughts and works will reflect a light-filled Christ-likeness. How do we show an alternative to the world around us? As Christ's people, we gather around his word and we let him do his work in our lives. You see that in the way in which we deal with success. When we deal with success as Christians, the alternative we offer, well, we're honest about our efforts, but mostly we're thankful to God for his unexpected blessings. You see it in the way in which we deal with disappointment And failure, again, we're saddened, but we're not crushed. 
Because it's not our identity that's on view. You see, in the way in which we deal with suffering and loss and grief, those are tragic things, but for God's people, we're not overwhelmed because we're people of hope because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection and the certainty of his return. And we see it in the way in which we live each day overflowing with thankfulness because once we had not received mercy, but now we have because God has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So when those around us see Christians living this way over a long period of time, they will see an alternative. An alternative that points towards Jesus. Well, as I said, at this point I was going to get us to finish by, and there's a slide on screen, just getting you to reflect for a few moments on each of those three images, but um, I've used up my time. Uh, You'll see the question at the bottom of your page, which you might like to reflect on afterwards. Which of these three images best resonates with you and how much you change in response? But as we come to the end of this short series, let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've done it not just for any one of us, but for all of us in the church, his body, your people. We pray that as we continue to think about who you are and what you are like, that you might encourage us that this church is to be for the praise and worship of you for your glorious grace. We thank you that we do so firmly convinced that we belong to Jesus, your son, and that we gather around your word. We pray that in the way in which we live, we might be a great witness to the world around us of an alternative, an alternative that points us to Christ. And we pray for his sake. Amen.